This episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast is sponsored in part by Law Enforcement Labor Services in Minnesota. Law Enforcement Labor Services, also known as LELS, is Minnesota's largest public safety labor union with over 7,000 Minnesota public safety members serving in all areas of public safety. Law enforcement, 911 dispatch centers, corrections, public safety administrative support personnel, and firefighters. Established in 1977, LELS serves over 260 different public safety agencies and over 450 locals across the state of Minnesota. With their administration, general counsel, three staff attorneys, and 14 business agents, LELS provides contract negotiations for better wages and benefits, grievance processing and representation, discipline representation, mediation and arbitration, assistance with representation for post-board hearings, and in-line-of-duty death benefits for survivor families. Find out more about Law Enforcement Labor Services at LELS.org. LELS.org. Episodes of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast may contain strong language and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Scott Rose. I'm currently the sheriff with the Dodge County Sheriff's Office in Southeast Minnesota. And I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and their sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. Audie Lynn Fox. Born in October of 1954 to Jeanette and Andrew Fox. He and his wife, Pam, had dated about a year and a half before they got married in a little Lutheran church up in Nashwalk, Minnesota, on June 15th, 1974. Audie was in the army with Pam's brother when he and Pam met. She was just 17 years old. He'd been stationed in Fort Carson, Colorado. Ronald Reagan had just been sworn in as the 40th president of the United States. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Now, congratulate you, sir. Iran released 52 Americans that had been held hostage for 44 days, ending the Iran hostage crisis. Now, day one. Day one of Ronald Reagan's presidency and day one of freedom for 52 Americans. Though thousands of miles apart, these two historic events moved almost on parallel tracks today. The new president had not been in office an hour when the former hostages became free men and women again. And they are well along now on their trip to West Germany and eventually to home. The The Ford Escort replaced Ford's Pinto 
and would emerge the following year as the best-selling car in America during the upcoming recession. Look out, world! Here comes Ford Escort. Hello, world! Car, think I like what you are. I know you're gonna travel me nowhere. Here come three high-mileage world cars from Ford. Escort two-door hatchback, four-door wagon, and introducing new Escort four-door hatchback. Look out, world! Ford Escort, outselling every car line in America. The year was 1981. Itasca County, Minnesota. The county is named after Lake Itasca, which is in turn a shortened version of the Latin words vertus caput, meaning truth and head, a reference to the lake being the source of the Mississippi River. Itasca County is in the very northern part of the state, and it's the third largest county in Minnesota with nearly 2,929 total square miles. Hilly, heavily wooded, and studded with lakes and ponds. In 1981, Jim Robertshaw was a young deputy sheriff with the Itasca County Sheriff's Office. Over 1,000 lakes, so about one-third of this 3,000 square miles is underwater in one way or another, creek, stream, or lake. And so we have cabins, and people from all over the world own cabins up here. Yeah, I mean, getting to a lake is a matter of about 10-minute drive in any direction from, or from wherever you live in this county. It's it's really blessed in a way, and uh, it's it's been a prosperous county uh, since it started with, uh, with uh, timber and a paper company up here, Blandon Paper Company. There were very few deputies to cover an enormous amount of miles of roadway, highways, county roads, and township roads in Itasca County. Itasca County Deputy Sheriff Tom Peltier explained that the deputies there did everything. Most of our job back then, I mean, I mean, I was in that area by myself, and often he would back me up, or I would back him up, or... Or other deputies, there was Wally Hirschback, Car Four. He were he was from Coleraine, and you know whoever was working, we just we used each other as a backup. But it was one of those situations. It's not like being in the cities. It's not where you have three cars are going to show up within two minutes. You know, you had to have the, the ability to handle a situation for a period of time until you got help. There was also a handful of small police departments. The law enforcement community was pretty small back then, and they covered 1,350 miles of roadway. Back then, just over 43,000 people called Itasca County home. There are 16 cities in the county. The largest is Grand Rapids, the county seat with just over 11,000 people. In addition to the 16 cities, there are 28 unincorporated communities, including one called Pengilly. Pengilly is located in the eastern part of Itasca County, about 178 miles north of the Twin Cities. The community lies in the Iron Range at the northern end of Swan Lake, and it's currently home to around 270 people. Throughout their marriage, they bounced around from place to place, living with parents, with relatives, in an RV, back and forth between Colorado, Minnesota, and a few other places. Pam's first memory of Audie beating her up was in 1975. He went from talking nice to her and hugging her to getting mad, and in her words, he started pounding on her. 
She said his mother just stood there and watched him do it until finally one blow from Adi knocked the wind out of Pam and his mom finally intervened and said, stop, I'm not going to let you hit her anymore. Pam said she never felt free to do anything. If she didn't do what Adi told her to do, he would hit her. His temper would just snap. Like when they were playing cards and he got upset and threw the table on top of her. The beatings, they continued and eventually resulted in Pam filing for divorce after having three kids with him. Even after splitting up, the relationship was violent. Pam said Audie had pointed a gun at her head during arguments. She'd been punched, kicked in the ribs, thrown down the stairs, and threatened many times. Pam said he had a bad, quick temper and truly believed there was nothing wrong with beating her up. At one point, after they split up, she even asked him if he'd ever beaten up this other girl, Debbie. Audie told her, no, I didn't love her. Audie had met this gal named Debbie Shaw, and he'd known her for about two years, started seeing her while he was still married to Pam. She was another reason why Pam filed for divorce. Audie and Debbie had recently broken up, and Debbie had moved back east. Audie had been living back in Colorado. He contacted Debbie, and he said he wanted to come back to Minnesota. Audie wanted to come back and get his kids. He'd left home in Colorado because police were looking for him. There were warrants filed in Minnesota for his arrest. Audie was on the run again. While it's unclear in the reports as to why, Audie's two-year-old daughter, Chrissy, had been with him in Colorado. Audie was struggling with money. He was struggling to feed himself and feed his daughter, Chrissy. He was having problems with his car, so he said he couldn't go to work, and he didn't like living alone. And He said he was at a breaking point, was now wanted, he was on the run, and yet somehow he talked Debbie into coming back to Minnesota with him. Itasca County Deputy Sheriff Pat Maduri. Audie was known throughout the area on the east side of the county uh, by law enforcement. I want to say he was a bad person. I think there's always good in everybody, but he was a, a bad person in the sense there was had many run-ins with the law. Audie Fox was no stranger to law enforcement in Minnesota. He'd been found guilty of two counts of felony theft back in August of 1976, and he was sentenced to two consecutive terms of zero to five years at St. Cloud State Reform School, and he served a year and a half. Itasca County Deputy Robert Lawson had been the investigating deputy on that case. Most recently, Fox had been wanted for the theft of a $5,000 motorcycle. Again, Lawson was the deputy investigating. Fox was also wanted in the Twin Cities for theft, assault with a gun, and possession of stolen property. In statements to authorities, Debbie claimed that Audie hadn't been using any drugs or alcohol. She said she, Audie, and Chrissy arrived at his parents' home in Pengilly at around 5 a.m. on Wednesday the 28th. Debbie said Audie used a screwdriver to pry open the door to his parents' house. His dad, Andrew, was apparently home when they broke in and mom was not. Debbie said they went straight down to the basement and Audie started loading the guns down there. While loading the guns downstairs, Audie told Debbie he wanted to get Pam and he indicated he'd kill her if he didn't get his kids. At this time, Andrew, his dad, still didn't know that they were in the basement. 
Janice Dickinson lived with her husband Chuck in a blue trailer with white trim just north of the Fox residence in Pengelly. Her maiden name was Melcher. She grew up in Park Rapids, Minnesota before moving to California and eventually they moved up to Pengelly in 1972 and they'd been there ever since. She was Audie's mother's sister. Janice said she got her first call at around 5.30 a.m. from a Helen Patello, which is Audie's grandmother, asking Janice to go over to the Fox residence and see if Pam was there. She said Audie had been trying to reach Pam. Janice agreed. She didn't know Audie was in her sister's basement making these phone calls. She walked across the street and thought nobody was there. Audie's dad's vehicle was gone, so she just went back home. Later, Audie called Janice himself from the basement, asking her to go get his kids and bring them over to his dad's house, that Audie wanted to talk to them on the phone. Janice, now seeing a light on at the Fox residence, calls over there and tells Audie's dad that Audie called her and wanted her to get his kids over there. Audie's dad, Andrew, said forget about it. Janice went over to the Fox's residence and she called Helen back on their phone and told her Pam wasn't there. Janice told Helen that Audie actually wanted her to bring the kids over to Andrew's house. Helen told her she didn't want Tommy over there and she didn't want little Andy over there. Andrew and Janice still had no idea there was anybody else in the house. At that point, the door flies open to the basement and Audie comes out with two long guns on his shoulders and a handgun. And he's telling them, these men are telling me to go get my kids. Apparently, he's referring to voices in his head, later referring to the voices as the protector. Debbie walked up shortly after him with Audie's daughter, Chrissy. Audie pointed the gun at his dad, upset that he wouldn't go get the kids for him. Then, at gunpoint, Andrew agreed he'd go get the kids. Audie said he'd give him 10 minutes or he'd kill everyone in the house. Unfortunately for these three kids, their dad's erratic behavior, their exposure to his violent relationship with their mother, and his being in and out of jail had become their normal. For a few years after the incident, I was part of a group that uh, did Christmas presents for uh, children of incarcerated uh, individuals, and somehow I drew Audie's kids, and, and I, I don't mean the, the flavor with bad seed, because they aren't. They were, those poor children were born to the, probably the most psychopathic, almost the most psychopathic person I think I've ever even heard of, let alone bumped into. Andrew came back with little Andy around 6 a.m. After that, Audie's dad, he left. It's believed that he and Audie's mom went to Hibbing to stay in a hotel. Many wonder to this day how things would have ended if Mr. and Mrs. Fox would have simply picked up the phone and called 911 and reported what was going on in their house. Unfortunately, we'll never know the answer. While his dad was gone to get little Andy, Audie had Janice start trying to call around to reach Pam and to get her to come out there to the house. Janice had no idea where Pam was. 
Janice didn't have a bad heart, which was good considering the stress she was under. She did, however, have diabetes, and a couple hours had gone by and she realized she needed insulin. At some point, Audie let her go back to her trailer to get her insulin, but he warned her that if she told her husband about what was going on, he would kill her kids. She truly believed he would kill her kids, Janan and Scott, if she told anyone Audie was at his parents' house. Her husband was there, and she did tell him Audie was at the house, but didn't say anything about the threats. She said her husband really didn't pay any attention to what she was saying. She figured he probably thought she was babysitting. She then walked back over to the Fox residence. Audie had Aunt Janice trying to contact Pam to convince her to come over to the house. The ruse was that she needed to go over there and get little Andy because his feet were hurting and that he needed to be taken to the doctor. Their story was that Janice couldn't take him to the hospital because she couldn't find the keys to the pickup. But then the story changed and it was because there was no gas in the pickup and Janice kept changing her story and after several phone calls with family members looking for Pam, they finally found her and Pam told Janice that she'd have to get Beefy to bring her over to the Fox residence because Pam wasn't going to go there on her own. Pam said she wouldn't be able to reach Beefy until later in the afternoon and she told Janice she was really scared. She felt like it was a trap. Pam was convinced that Audie may be in the area. She just had a feeling that something was wrong, and she wouldn't go over without Beefy. Robert Lawson was a Itasca County Sheriff's deputy, and up there, everyone referred to him as Beefy. Apparently, up on the Iron Range, everyone went by nicknames back then. You know, it was his nickname. When we first moved up here in 78, you could open a phone book for east of Grand Rapids. It's the beginning of the Iron Range, okay? If you ever heard of it, the Iron Range begins just east of Grand Rapids. People's names were in the phone books by their nicknames. There was Slimmy Trombley. There was Beefy Lawson. It, you know, it, it, it was a different world. It really, but everybody had a nickname if you're from, say, Taconite eastward towards Calumet, Pengilly, and on up towards Hibbing, Virginia. Everybody had a nickname. I don't know anybody who was called by their real name. While the origin of Beefy's nickname is still unclear, what is clear is how loved and respected Beefy was in this community. Beefy was a mentor to many. You know, Beefy was a mentor for me. Worked a couple of cases together as a young deputy. Uh, gave me some guidance. Not being directly involved in the investigation, as I said, I was on a peripheral. I sat at a, a point during the standoff and that. But Beefy was a guy that he just he had a great way about himself and he solved a lot of crime. He always had the belief in something he shared with me. Pat, you want respect? You treat people with respect no matter how bad of a person they are, you still treat them respectfully and they'll respect you back. And he always saw the good in somebody. And uh, he dedicated a lot of his uh, time to youth. Uh, troubled you. Uh, you always tried to get him on the right side. Tom Peltier was another deputy who worked for Itasca County back in those days. He was the most unbelievable man I've ever met. I, I could tell you. I mean, we were really close and we were like partners since the time I started. He helped train me and then we were working on the case together in Pennsylvania at that time. Beefy was born in 1930 in Taconite a small mining community of around 300 people in the Minnesota Iron Range area of Itasca County. 
He lived in Taconite his whole life, other than when he served his country in Korea. And he and his wife, Mary Jane, raised three daughters and four sons. His oldest was Bobby. When he was over in Korea, he got TB, tuberculosis, and uh, he came home. And I've got pictures, Scott, you, I mean, I've seen those concentration camps in, in Germany, and he was looked exactly the same. I mean, they didn't think he was going to make it. He was went down to, it was called no pemming at that time in Minnesota, and they, that's where they treated the folks that had TB. And they didn't think he was going to make it. In fact, that's why I was named after uh, after him. It was my dad's name is Robert R. Lawson, and mine was Robert R. Lawson as well. Because uh, my mother's my mother said they they told her that he wasn't going to going to make it through this. Having grown up and lived in this community his entire life, he was known and loved by all, and he was very active in the community. He'd been a star hockey player growing up and now was a well-known hockey coach and very involved in many organizations in this community, along with his work with the sheriff's office. If someone needed help, whether it was law enforcement related or not, he was there. Uh, he seemed to have a, a real charisma about him and in, in so, he had so many friends. I mean, there was always people who were coming in and out of our house and and I can remember as a young kid I, I just discussions uh, it was kind of over my head but he, a lot of people came to him for for advice I believe and and I remember when well growing up we were uh, like I can say a, we always if there was somebody had a need uh, there was no what do you guys you know uh, to the kids or he told us this is what we're going to do today and uh, we would end up going and helping whoever needed help I don't care if it was building a uh, putting shingles on somebody's garage or helping somebody build uh, something or another that uh, whatever it was we I mean it was just a no-brainer we were going to do it and I can remember during Christmas he had us uh, my mother and dad we had a uh, there was a family that was really poor and there was a ch child that matched each of our ages and during the Christmas season we'd go out there with a with a present for those unfortunates I believe the father had been hurt in the mining company accident and the mother was disabled as well and they had a dirt floor and you know I don't even know if they had electricity but yeah that I think our communities in those days, to just put it all together, it was a mining company and most of the people were actually uh, uh, laid off during the mines the only, or during the winter. The only time they could really work was during the months where, where the water didn't freeze. The rest of the day, Janice and Debbie stayed at the house with Audie, Chrissy, and little Andy. Debbie said that she and Janice sat around with Audie and tried to talk him into just leaving with his daughter Chrissy and his son Andy and to come back later for his son Tony. Debbie and Janice would spend the night at the Fox residence with Audie and the kids. Audie was fixated on getting his kids and getting Pam. That next morning, they felt they had Audie convinced to leave with the two kids until they got the phone call. They received a phone call and were told Pam was afraid to come over to the house, so she had called Beefy. They were told Beefy was gonna come over to get Andy. Audie was furious. 
Now there was no way he was going to leave. Deputy Tom Peltier was the deputy assigned to the Pengali area and was very familiar with Audie. I knew Audie well, and, and I'll tell you what, he, from 16 on, I knew him, and he was the most spoiled child I'd ever seen. I'm sorry. You know, and the fact that his mother was an elementary teacher and his father was mine, but I mean, you wouldn't think he would be, but he was. I just remember when he was 16 or 70, he, he ended up with a Corvette. And I thought, what child has a Corvette? And uh, I know a number of times I tried to chase He outran me a few times, and then he would leave his car, and then automatically he would call in. That's not the stuff, that's the type of guy he was. And then he'd call in and say that his car was stolen. He'd had many run-ins with Audie over the years, even saved his life once. Well, I was at 2 o'clock in the morning. I remember this clear, and I'm driving on the North Shore of Swan Lake where he lives, and I'm just patrolling, okay? And across the road runs two guys in looks like army gear with rifles, and they run across the road right in the middle of the night into the woods. I stopped like an idiot. I mean, the stupidity of me was, when I think about it after and I got out and yelled and said, you guys come out of the woods. <laughs> and I'm outside my car. I was to God, this guy comes out of the woods with a rifle. And I, and I asked him his name, and he was one of the motorcycle guys from Hibbing. And I said, what the hell is going on here? And he said, we got about 15 guys in the woods here, and Ali Fox stole their colors, and he won't get back, and we're, we're going to get him. And... And I said, so I talked to him for a little bit, and I said, listen, you guys hold off. Tell those guys in the woods, I don't know where they were. I said, you hold off. Let me go in there and see if I can't get those. So I drove into the house. Audio was there. And I went into the house and said, what the, you know, what the hell are you? They're out here, and they're going to kill you. And he had his gun. He knew they were out there. And I said, give those colors back, and we'll get them. Get this. I had to talk him out of it, but I finally got the jacket. And I went out and got it, and all the guys came out of the woods. It was like an army, and I thought to myself, holy crap, and they had communication. And we drove up to Hibbing, honest to God. I sat and had a cup of coffee with three, four of these guys, the head guys. And we went to uh, Maggie's Cafe. We sat in there, had a cup of coffee, and left. But I literally saved his life. Because I'm telling you, they are going to get it, and they were going to shoot it out with them if they have to or whatever. But Audie was alone at the house at the time. That's the kind of stuff he had going all the time. Tom wished he'd never saved him after what happened later with Beefy, but that was his job. This was 1981. There were no cell phones back then. There weren't even cordless phones back then. The first true cordless phone wouldn't be available to the public for years after this. The phones back then were rotary dial with varied cord lengths, and each time Janice would get on the phone on the main floor to contact someone when they were trying to reach Pam, Audie would be standing in the stairwell of the basement on a long corded phone, listening into her conversations and then often coaching her as to what to say. Janice would be stuck at the Fox residence with Audie, Debbie, and the two kids for another night. At some point, Audie told Janice to call Essler's, which is Pam's parents' place. That's where she found Pam. Pam insisted that Janice not tell Audie's mom or anyone else that she was at her parents' place. Audie was listening on the other line, and now he knew. 
This is when Audie instructed Janice what to say. He quietly told her to tell Pam that little Andy was sick and crying and needed to go to the doctor, and she didn't have a way to get him there. Janice told Pam that his feet hurt really bad and Pam needed to take him to the doctor. Pam, not hearing any crying in the background, was suspicious. Janice wanted to whisper to Pam that it was a trap, but she knew Audie was still on the line, listening with his gun pointed at her from the stairway. Pam then called Audie's grandmother, Helen, to see if anybody had called her about Andy being sick. She said no. As far as Helen knew, the only one that had been sick was Audie's mother, who had been in the hospital. Pam then called Janice's house, and her daughter answered, said that her mom was at the Fox's and didn't know anything about little Andy being sick. Pam then called Janice back at the Fox residence, and Janice told Pam that her 18-year-old daughter Janan was not home and she had no vehicle to get little Andy to the hospital, so could she please come? Pam now felt that this was a trap. She was concerned that Audie was around and that Janice was going to try and take all her kids away and claim she was an unfit mother. Pam called Beefy later that day and shared her suspicions with him. He suggested she should get her parents and her brothers to go over to the Foxes with her to get little Andy. That night, Pam decided not to go over to the Fox residence. It was now Wednesday night. It was Debbie, Janice, Chrissy, Andy, and Audie all staying at the house. According to Debbie, she and Janice went and laid down on the bed for a few hours, and they had little Andy with them. He was five years old at the time. Chrissy laid on the bed for a while, and then she would want to go lay down with Audie. She was two. Debbie said in statements that she and Janice wanted to get the kids out of there, but Audie would never go to sleep. Every time they would get up or move, Audie would ask what they were doing. Audie now wasn't talking much at this point. He said he was talking to his protector, the voices in his head, the men he referred to days earlier who were telling him what to do. He was up and down. He was twitching his head. He was shaking at times. He wouldn't allow anyone but the kids to touch him. It was Thursday morning. Pam got a call from Audie's grandmother, Helen. She said that Audie had called her and said he was in Duluth and needed to talk to Pam. Her grandmother said Audie told her, I know you don't like me, I'm no good, but I have to talk to Pam. Helen told him Pam wasn't there. She was concerned he would go crazy if she told him Pam was there. Audie told Helen to tell Pam, I'm going to do it. Helen said she asked where their daughter Chrissy was. Audie told her he had Chrissy and said he was going to take her with him. But what did that mean? What are you going to do with her? If you don't believe me, I'll give you a phone number. You can call and you can check it out. It was the number to some doctor he supposedly had talked to, and he gave her the phone number. It was a Duluth telephone number. Pam would later explain that Audie indicated he was up in the sticks somewhere in Duluth and he was going to kill himself and their two-year-old daughter Chrissy. He didn't come right out and say that, but she knew that's what he meant, and he stated it would be too late before anybody found them. Pam called Beefy and told him what she knew at this point, and she gave him the phone number Audie had given to Helen. 
Beefy tried the number a few times, but didn't get any answer, so he looked up the number and it came back to a clinic in Duluth. Initially, Beefy told Pam he wanted her to meet him at the liquor store in Calumet, and then they'd both go over to the Fox house. Beefy then called Deputy Tom Peltier, who was the deputy working Pengilly for Itasca County. Beefy and Tom had been working on a case involving Audie Fox, and Beefy explained what was going on, and he asked Tom to come over to his house to pick him up so the two of them could go to the Fox residence to go get the kids and to make sure they were safe. We were working on that case, and we had the warrants out for him, so we were always cautious of what he was going to do and that he was dangerous. And hence the call, Beefy had received the call that the morning of his death. He had received, at least what he told me, he said he got a call. They said that somebody that was kind of out of control had had to see a psychologist there and, and was on the loose, but his name was Audie Fox. And that's why Beefy called me. He called me in the morning and said, pick me up. He wanted to get the kids to make sure the kids were safe somewhere. And he just, you know, he knew he was dangerous and just wanted to get out of there. So he called me. I couldn't go. He went up to the house to get the kids, and then he walked in, and Audie was already there. Tom wasn't able to help. He was in a suit and was headed out the door to meet Judge Spooner for a job interview in probations. Beefy knew Audie was dangerous and normally wouldn't deal with him alone, but he was worried about the kids. Recently, Beefy had even warned his son Bobby about Audie when Bobby moved to Pengilly. Uh, what happened is, again, I lived out, it was in the rural Pengilly area I lived, and probably three, four miles from where Adi Fox's parents and where he murdered my dad. And uh, I remember him coming out, my, uh, and it was during the summer there, just prior to his death, and, and he never talked shop to me or anything usually about his job. He just come out and visited me, and he, we had a granddaughter for him to see, of course. and. Anyway, uh, he said uh, that there's a guy by the name of Adi Fox that lives over there in Swan Lake. He said, and if you ever run into him, he said, you better be careful because he's going to kill somebody someday. Beefy, worried about the kids, would go to the Fox residence on his own. Chief Deputy Bob Serich was in the office when Beefy called him about the Fox residence. Back then, deputies had to check in with Bob first before they went out on overtime. Beefy said that Pam wanted to pick up her kids over at the Foxes and wanted a deputy to come help her. Beefy told Bob that he was off duty, but he knew the kids personally, and he felt like they would be less scared if he came with Pam to get them. Prior to the sheriff's office cracking down on overtime, the deputies would just respond to a call if needed, and then they would turn in a report and then turn in their time, not contacting the office. What Pam and Beefy didn't know was that Audie wasn't in Duluth. The drive from Beefy's house to the Fox residence was about 10 miles north on Highway 169. When Beefy pulled up to the house, Audie instructed Janice to sit on the kitchen chair with Andy on her lap so she could be seen by Beefy when he walked up to the door. Audie was now racing through the house. He was pulling curtains shut and acting crazy like he was going to kill Pam. He was moving various guns around the house and he warned Janice, don't try and warn Beefy. He told her, just sit in the chair with little Andy when they come in. Beefy knocked on the door and Janice opened it. 
Five-year-old Andy was with Janice in the kitchen, and Audie's girlfriend Debbie was in the other room with his two-year-old daughter Chrissy. Janice answered the door, hoping to appear to Beefy that there was something wrong so he wouldn't come inside. She said she was scared to death. Beefy walked in, introduced himself to Janice, and told her he'd come to pick up little Andy. And, and Audie had a thing about Beefy, because Beefy was absolutely tenacious. He's probably maybe one of the best investigators and a, and a natural born one. He enjoyed it. And even at 51, he had the ability to stay awake, you know, for days at a time, it seemed like, till he got what he wanted. The minute Beefy indicated he was there alone to pick up little Andy and was not actually bringing Pam like they had planned, Audie lost his mind. As Beefy walked into the kitchen, Audie came out from behind the door with a 357 revolver pointed at Beefy's back. At gunpoint, Audie ordered Beefy to lie down on the floor, face down inside the kitchen, right in front of the basement door. Beefy refused. Audie told him to get down. Beefy still refused. Audie pulled back the hammer on the 357 revolver. Beefy complied, and he went down to the floor face down. Audie said, You fucker, you've been riding me for 16 years. Audie told Beefy that ever since the sixth grade, Beefy was out to get him, and all the police up here were never fair to him. If Beefy would have just left him alone, he wouldn't have gotten into so much trouble. Audie said that Beefy took everything he ever had by pumping others and scaring them into talking about stuff. He asked Beefy, what's Pam's number? Beefy said he didn't know Pam's number and he would have to call the sheriff's office to get it. Audie was enraged that Beefy wouldn't comply being threatened at gunpoint. You know, Beefy, I'm crazy, don't you know? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to blow your fucking head off. And then I'm going to kill my two kids and I'm going to kill myself. Audie, haven't I helped you? You've got a family. Think of them. Don't do this. Audie told Beefy if he wouldn't call Pam or he wouldn't get Pam over there, he was going to kill him. Beefy continued to tell Audie he didn't have Pam's number, that he'd been on vacation, he wasn't even working that day, that he'd have to call dispatch to get Pam's number. Beefy had many dealings with Audie and Pam over the years. She trusted him, and Audie knew that. At one point during the yelling, Audie thought Beefy was trying to move his hands toward his gun. Audie instructed Janice to get Beefy's gun, and reluctantly, Janice reached down, removed Beefy's gun from his holster, and she gave it to Audie. Beefy, don't mess with my head. I'm in no shape right now for you to mess with my head. Audie told Beefy he would count to three, and if he didn't tell him Pam's number by the count of three, he was going to shoot him. Debbie took off to the living room with Chrissy. Three, two, one. Audie shot Beefy in the back of the head. Audie looked at Janice and said, please leave Janice. Janice ran out of the house and wanted to take Beefy's car. Audie told her no. Debbie later indicated to police that she knew Beefy was dead instantly that he never moved after the shot. She said Audie went back to the bedroom where she was with Chrissy and he said, I don't know what happened. I tried to tell him, but he wouldn't listen to me. I just lost it. I flipped. The next thing I know, the gun went off. Audie told Debbie, you gotta get out of here before I hurt you. Debbie said, oh my God, Audie. He told her again, get out. Then Debbie came running out of the house, fell as she ran out because she was absolutely hysterical. 
Janice took off running toward Karen Johnson's house, which was just down the street. Janice tried to get Debbie to go with her, but Debbie was so distraught she fell to the yard and was crying. They were both hysterical. Now Karen Johnson was hysterical too. She had a heart condition and Karen called her husband Perry. Perry then called the sheriff and then called Janice's daughter Janan while Karen got Janice out of the house. Karen drove Janice to the Union 76 gas station in Pengilly. At the gas station, they called an ambulance to check on Janice. They evaluated her and then allowed her daughter Janan, who responded as well, to transport Janice to the hospital. Karen was calling frantically to reach her husband Chuck to keep him in the house. When law enforcement started arriving after the shooting was reported, the sheriff's office dispatch got on the phone with Audie. They started a dialogue with him. The dispatcher that day was Gary Mitchell. Sounding just crazy, he explained to Gary that his little boy and his little girl were with him. And then he says, and Beefy, he's dead. Audie's family would later tell law enforcement that they'd never seen him act like this before. He was acting crazy. And according to Debbie, he hadn't been using any drugs or been drinking. Prior to the day of the shooting, while sitting on the couch in the Fox residence, Debbie said she saw Audie scratching something onto the bullets of his gun. She asked him, what are you doing? He finished without answering, washed them in the kitchen, and then he put them on the kitchen table. Then he walked downstairs. Debbie walked over to look and found that Audie had carved names onto the casings of each of these bullets. The names he carved were Beefy, Chrissy, Andy, Pam, and Odd, A-U-D. A bullet for everyone he planned on killing that day. Debbie indicated that at that time she believed Audie was going to kill himself too. When Pam was en route to the Fox residence, she was unaware anything had happened with Beefy. She pulled into the driveway and she could see Beefy's car sitting there along with another police car. Two police officers were standing at the end of the driveway and they motioned for Pam and her mom to get out of there. Itasca County Sheriff's Deputy James Furlong had responded to assist and was parked in Janice Dickinson's driveway just across the street. When he pulled up, he saw a female kneeling in the fox's front yard crying. He called her over to him and she ran to him. She was hysterical, saying, he shot Beefy, he shot Beefy, he shot Beefy. She said it over and over again. The woman was Debbie Shaw, who just saw Audie execute Beefy. Pam stopped in Janice's driveway and was understandably upset to see Debbie, knowing she was the girl that Audie was running around with that was part of why they divorced. She asked them where her children were. Debbie, hysterical, told Pam, get out of here. Pam told law enforcement later that Debbie reacted like she knew Pam would be in danger if she stuck around. Pam still didn't know at that time that Audie was in the house and that he just shot Beefy. Deputy Furlong told Pam to go home and that the sheriff's office would be contacting her. Pam, her mother, and her son Tommy then left the scene and stopped at the Union 76 station in town. That's where they saw Janice and Karen, who told them Audie had shot Beefy, and little Andy and Chrissy were still inside with him. Deputy Peltier found out about Beefy being shot during his job interview. 
I was interviewing for the, for my job in Judge Booner's chamber, and somebody from the sheriff's office came up, just opened up the door and said, Beefy's been shot. I just left. I jumped in my squad car, which was down below, and I headed up to Penn Gilly. Wally Hirschback, who was uh, the other deputy from Coleraine, pulled in front of me, and the two of us were heading up there um, 100 miles an hour. And um, this is what I recall. Wally's car in front of me uh, blew up. So he jumped in with me, and so the two of us ended up going the, the last, uh, he, that was in Calumet, so we went the last seven miles or so together. We got to the scene, uh, Bob Sarich and, and Jimmy Furlong were there. They were the first two on, Jimmy. I think Jimmy Furlong was the first one on the scene. And Bob Sarich was there, and uh, we were getting out of the car, and he told, he told me to stay in the car. He asked me, he said, you go find the family. I said, I'm, I'm staying right here. And he said, you can't be here, you're too close. And I said, Bob, I said, you know, I can do this. I'm professional. And he said, no, you know the family. You know where they're at. Go find them. Get them over to Wally's house in Coleraine and keep him in one spot. And don't tell him that he's been shot. We, we don't know any details. Just get them together. They'll do it for you. So, so I left Wally at the scene. And then I drove back and started rounding up his wife and kids. I mean, he had seven children <laughs> But I got them all over to Wally Hirschback's house, and they knew, they knew he had been shot. Okay, they they knew, but they had no idea what, if he was alive or things or whatever. And neither did I at that time. Well, I was working for a logger by the name. Actually, in the mines, what happened is they they did a lot of layoffs at that time. So my my secondary job was I was a, a piece cutter for a logger and. In those days, of course, there was no cell phone or whatever. So I happened to be out in Heart Lake, which is a little, you know, it's an area not too far away from Penn Gilly. And I was doing what they call piece cutting there and small logging operation. I can remember very clearly, you know, I... I was sitting down for a break and at that time you don't get it wasn't an hourly salary you got paid for how many how many uh, cords of wood went into the actual uh, company so you you just you know so I, I was sitting there and it was a bright sunny day I, and I just remember all of a sudden this I felt something uh, just I don't know what it was just an unbelievable uh, sensation of I can't even describe it and it's never happened to me at any other time in my life just like it kind of went right through me I, I don't know and it was there for a while well then I remember looking at my watch and it was 10 30 ish and uh, and then I didn't think any much more of it when I went back to work and then this gal who was in her 80s Mrs. Loken her name was she came over to uh, and got me I don't know exactly what time that was but probably an hour or so after that and said that there had been some kind of a some kind of a oh, burglary or whatever at the gas station in Pangeli and your dad got hurt and that, that's that's how the story got distorted but she was in her she was in her 80s at that time, 85. So I then went to uh, went back and and Tom Peltier, that's that was my dad's partner. He gathered us over the whole family over at another friend of my dad's, Wally Hirschback's home in Coleraine, 
And in fact, Wally Hirschback is was my wife's father. Yeah, and I can remember uh, we were uh, we were all there, and I tried calling the sheriff's office to find out what was you know what had really happened. And of course, nobody. I at that time, my dad's body was still in the house, and and uh, they really didn't know too much. It is one of the darkest days in Itasca County's history. The body of Deputy Robert Lawson is wheeled out on a stretcher, the victim of a single gunshot to the head. Lawson was killed execution style at this home in Pengilly. The veteran deputy came to the home to pick up a child, but it was a setup. As he walked in a back door, Audie Fox, a career criminal who'd had run-ins with Lawson before, was waiting for him. The standoff continued with Audie trying to negotiate with the Itasca County Dispatch to let him talk to Pam. Get over Communications were a big challenge during incidents like this back in those days. There were no cell phones, there were only landlines, and Audie was listening to them on the scanner. Most agencies' radio systems had only one channel for communications, and many in the community would listen to their local cops on their scanners at home. Also, back then they didn't have tactically trained teams to deal with incidents like this. There was no such a thing as a SWAT team or any of that. I mean, and most of the time, the, I'm sure those other guys referred to it as if, if there was a problem, usually, uh, you know, one of the deputies would go there and deal with it kind of one-on-one. They also had limited equipment back then. Bullet-resistant vests, for example, weren't being issued back then yet. Their equipment was pretty minimal. A command post had been set up at a neighbor's home near the Fox residence, and Chief Deputy Sarich and Officer Don Irish had been in contact with Audie from there to convince him to let Don come into the house and to get Beefy's body out. Gary Mitchell, the Itasca dispatcher who developed a pretty good relationship with Audie, was not aware that the Chief Deputy had talked to Audie about getting Beefy out of there. Audie told Gary he did not like Bob Sarich. In another call, Audie told Gary that the protector was watching the command post. Thank you. 
Gary then contacted the command post and was filled in on what they were going to do and then he called Audie back. You can hear Gary in this recording having to go back and forth between the telephone and the radio, being the only one in dispatch at the time. Officer Don Irish had been one of the first officers on scene after Beefy was shot. Don was a part-time officer who was working for the Nashwalk Police Department when the call came out that an officer had been shot. Nashwalk is just about five miles north of Pengilly on Highway 169. Don was on the perimeter for several hours before being told by Deputy Tom Peltier that he was wanted at the command post. Don and Tom went to the command post and was told by Sheriff Johansson and Chief Deputy Sarich 
that Audie agreed that he would allow Don to enter the Fox residence and remove Beefy's body. The uh, other policeman at the door, Don Irish, he, uh, he was a part-time policeman for the city of Nashwalk, and he drove a uh, tow truck also, and he was probably as strong as the tow truck he drove. He was a big guy, big round head, kind of a flushed face, really striking blue eyes, and a heck of a nice guy, but strong to beat the band, which is why Beefy's body was carried out by Don Irish. Artie did not want two or three men to come in and pick up Beefy's body, but he knew Don Irish by himself could pick up the body and walk out with him. Sheriff Johansson then deputizes Don, which back then meant that Don would now be able to work under the authority of the sheriff's office. According to reports, Chief Deputy Sarich and Irish approached the Fox residence towards the front of the house. While standing in the roadway, Irish showed Audie that he was unarmed. He approached the side entrance on the south side of the house and opened the outside screen door with a screwdriver, as instructed by Audie. Audie was not satisfied with the way Irish had approached the house, so when Irish tried to enter the house, Audie ordered him to return to the roadway and to show him again that he was unarmed. Audie told him to walk directly across the front lawn and walk up the front steps and stay there. Don said he stood there for about 60 seconds. Finally, Audie instructed him to leave the front steps and go back over to the side entrance of the house and to come in. Don sprung the latch on the door of the screwdriver and he popped it open a few inches. He pushed the door open and he called out for Audie and he could see Beefy lying face down in a pool of blood on the kitchen floor. Don said, Audie, I'm here to take Beefy out. Audie told Don, pick him up and get him the hell out of here. Don told him that he'd pick him up, he'd carry him out, and then he'd come back and shut the door. Audie replied, no, get that fucker out of here and get him out of here now. Drag him out and shut the goddamn door at the same time. After you shut it, shake it hard so I know it's locked. He then told Don to place Beefy's body on Beefy's patrol car and then drive the vehicle away from the area. Don asked Richard, who was a friend of Audie's that had previously talked to him on the phone, to come over to Beefy's patrol car and help him get Beefy on the hood. Audie was on the phone with dispatcher Gary Mitchell at the time, and he told Gary, After placing Beefy's body on the hood of his squad car, Richard drove the car away from the house while Don held on to Beefy's body on the car. They drove him to the closest ambulance and placed Beefy's body on a stretcher, and then he was transported to Itasca Memorial Hospital. Up until that point, the Lawson family really didn't know how bad things were until I they turned on I can specifically remember watching on the TV, then I seen right there when they, <clears throat> they had his... <sighs> Excuse me, in the trunk of the car. So, so. But uh, at that point, I shut the TV off, and, uh, and then we, you know, we we tried to to uh, after that we went over to my house where my mother was and and uh, comforted her, and and then my grandparents, of course, they just lived across the street. So, yeah, that was, um, then we got the, more of the information as time went on, and 
But that's kind of my memory of the day. Eventually, during negotiations, Audie's mom ended up at the command post, and the hostage negotiator that had come down from Dakota County to assist, he'd been talking with Audie. The plan they'd come up with was to convince Audie and his mom that if he gave himself up, they would take him to the hospital, along with Pam and the kids. Chief Deputy Bob Surich then made the decision to allow Audie's mom to walk back down to the house and talk to Audie to let him know that Pam was there and what their plan was. The hostage negotiator was not happy with this decision to send Audie's mother back into the house. Surich argued that he didn't think Audie would hurt his mom. He was also a mama's boy, and Surich felt Audie may not even hurt the kids at all if his mom was in the house. In hostage negotiations, typically you would never allow another civilian, especially a family member, to go back into the building or area where the suspect was held up. Surich's argument was there was nothing typical about this incident or about Audie Fox. Grand Rapids police officer Harvey Dahlin had been on scene helping with perimeter since about 8 p.m. Wednesday night. While working the perimeter and not knowing what was going on in command, he was surprised to meet Audie's mom walking down the driveway. I'd seen a woman walking up and down that road at one time uh, prior to me going out there. And then I went out and I got these coats and so forth and uh, for these guys to stay warm. Well, it just so happened that all at once I'm walking right next to Mrs. Fox's mother. And we... And when we talked, she must have been acting as somewhat of a go-between between the head uh, guys doing this. So then uh, we're walking down the road together, and, and basically what we're saying to each other, because they had some snipers in there, and he had these children on his lap as protection, and that it was going to take an act of God for him to come out of there tonight. At one point during the evening, concerned that Audie was becoming more unstable, Deputy Peltier explained that Chief Deputy Sarich wanted to position a sniper to take Audie out if he had a shot. Only one time during that period of time, uh, I think Bob was getting a little nervous that he, he, was, he was getting a little unstable. And so next to the house was a little trailer house where the grandmother lived. And he asked Wally and I, we came in and he said, Wally, Wally was a deputy, but he was just a great shot, okay? So, and he said, while he had his 30 out six, and he just said, you guys go in there and, and get a spot because there was a window, a bedroom window on that side. And he said, if you get a shot, take them. And uh, I was, my job was just to sit there and, and kind of be a watchman with him. And uh, while he was the shooter and we were good friends. So we just sat there and, you know, there was one incident then when, when the light came on in the room, but Audie walked in briefly with his, he had the youngest one in his arms, and it, we just couldn't, he couldn't get a shot. And the, he was in and out fast, and that's the only thing we saw. Sometime after midnight, Harvey saw some activity at the house. Oh, somewhere after 12 o'clock, I seen, well, it must have been getting close to 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. I seen this light go on in the basement, and I knew that what he was supposedly doing was up in this one room so he shouldn't have been down there and I thought to me, myself he's hiding something so then I uh, put that in my mind this would become relevant later at 2 a.m. everyone met at command and discussed the negotiations that they'd been working on with Audie over the last few hours Audie was led to believe that if he came out and gave himself up 
Itasca County would load him in the ambulance and they would take him to the hospital in Duluth for evaluation. There was also discussion about a custody agreement, all really a ploy just to get Audie to give himself up without hurting anyone else. Audie agreed he would give himself up after he and his mother, who is now back at the house with him, got to see his wife Pam and his other son Tommy, who were supposed to be in a van behind the ambulance that was supposed to drive up to the house. Dispatcher Gary Mitchell was also now in the command center, and Audie's dad and sister were there along with Pam and Tommy. Audie trusted Don Irish, and he agreed to surrender only to him and to Officer Pete Sackerman. After the sheriff deputized Sackerman, as he did earlier with Don, both officers left the command post with Chief Deputy Sarich. Don was driving while Officer Sackerman was in the passenger seat. Chief Deputy Sarich was positioned near the northeast corner of the Fox residence. When Sarich gave them the go-ahead, Don pulled into the driveway and drove up to the door on the south side of the house. Both officers got out of the ambulance and stood there until the door opened. They could see Audie was standing on the basement stairs, holding a child in each arm like he was using them as shields. When Audie saw that they still had guns on, he started yelling again. Don Irish told Audie, I trusted you this morning, now you trust us now. Irish and Sackman then took their guns off and went up to the front door so Audie could see them again. At that time, Audie started yelling again about not seeing Pam, not seeing the van. Pam and Tommy were supposed to be in the van and he didn't see them out there. The negotiator had an open line to the house and you could hear Audie argue with his mom and tell his five-year-old son, little Andy, that he was going to get taken away. Yeah. 
Eventually, Audie told officers Irish and Sackerman that he wasn't armed and that they could come in and take a look. They could see Audie was still standing on the basement stairway holding the two kids. When Audie came into the kitchen area, Sackerman walked in. While Sackerman was still talking with Audie, Don saw a van pull into the driveway behind the ambulance. Uh, they got a hold of me and said, you have a van and we might need that for the kids and everybody to come out in some larger vehicle. And I said, well, what do you want me to do with it? And they said, well, drive it down in this one place, maybe 100 feet from the door and park the thing there. Harvey had used his personal van to drive to the scene to assist. They needed a van to convince Audie that they were keeping to their agreement. So Harvey agreed to drive his van down the driveway and meet Don Irish by the ambulance. Harvey met Chief Deputy Sarich and Don Irish by the ambulance just outside of Audie's view. Sarich asked Don if he thought he could rush Audie and get him without anybody getting hurt. Don, concerned about the steps down the basement and the kids in Audie's arms, said he was concerned about the kids' safety and wasn't sure he could get Audie without the kids getting hurt. Sarich told Don to go back and talk to Audie again, but they were getting frustrated they weren't getting anywhere with Audie. Audie's mom called the command post again. Hello? You know, Harry? Hi, Janet. Yeah. What's happening? Well, he, uh, he doesn't see Pam. Well, now you know Pam's here. Yes, I know. Isn't it 
Betsy, they're gonna go set something up in that fucking van. Hey. Yeah. Get that Harry on the phone. Okay. Alright. Okay, now they're both leaving again. What? Maybe because somebody told them to leave. Nobody told them to leave. They shouldn't be leaving. You want them to stay? Oh, well, one of them to stay, so I ain't gotta go through this bullshit. They're gonna go set something up in that van or something. No, okay. Who's pulling away? Nani and Pete? Yeah.
Officer Harvey Dahlin was first through the door. Well, he's pretty irrational, and you could hear him and stuff. And it sounded like he was getting a little more ballistics. And things are dropping down, and he's demanding things. And uh, so things looked like, like they were going to heck from what they'd agreed on, whatever that was. But I, she was near the door, and I thought this guy could be had. He's getting everything he asks for. He, he gets he demands and he gets it right now. And he's been doing this for some 15, 18 hours. So at that time, I uh, I talked to uh, Johansson and Sarich, who are in charge of this. I wouldn't do anything without their telling me to go ahead. You understand that? And you don't have people jump in and do. But I said, I think this guy can be had. And they said, well, let's try it. And so the idea was that see if I could talk my way to the door and take whatever action is appropriate after that. But they had two other guys sitting on the edge of the building to back me up. And at that time, then I just 
as she was by the door, I walked up and I think she opened the screen door. So I'm standing there talking to her and then he really went ballistics. And I said, what's the problem? And she says, he thinks you got a gun and he don't want you here. Well, I had a gun in my army fatigue jacket. I took that and I was standing on top of about a five, four foot cement entryway. And inside was just a quaggle of blood right inside of the door. I think the stairs went right straight down. And he was sitting to the left about 15 feet in on maybe a lounge chair with kids on it. She was on his right leg and the kid was on the left. And uh, so I said, well, no, I haven't got a gun. So I took my jacket off and I threw it off the steps. And I stepped in, straddled the coagulation of blood, you know, it's slippery. But I turned my back to him and said, see, and I flipped my shirt up in the back. So here I am, I'm facing away from him at this time. Of course, he doesn't feel endangered particularly. Then I pivoted and I used to play football and he didn't have a chance to even move. And I went for him and I drove in and I got the kids, I had his arms some way with the kids in between us, but I was locked around his elbows and we drove over the chair. I lit on top of him, well, I don't know, a second or two, three seconds, these guys were all over us and they picked us up and carried us out of the place. Harvey, Don Irish, Chief Deputy Sarich and Pete Sackerman took him down. Several others jumped in to help, including Deputy Jim Robertshaw. We were wrestling at the bottom of the steps, and uh, I, I just felt funny because my back was to the door, and I knew someone had just opened the door. And I turned around in this wrestling match. I look up, and there's his mother with a purse, and somehow it got in my head. She's got a gun in the purse. She's just going to open up on all of us now because we're all like four, five, six feet away. And there was a hired patrolman there. His last name was Fort. And I, I just yelled, just grab her in the purse, just please. So he did, he opened up her purse, and instead out comes a pill bottle with the bullets with the uh, names etched on them. The kids were then reunited with Pam, who was in another vehicle with Deputy Gilbert and the negotiator near the residence. On the following Monday, November 2nd, the Itasca County Sheriff's Office did a search warrant at the Fox residence. The search warrant resulted in the seizure of 35 guns. One handgun, Beefy's service weapon, was found in the sump pump. They were still looking for the gun used to kill Beefy. They also recovered 3,100 rounds of ammunition. Robert Beefy Lawson was 51 years old. He left behind his wife, Mary Jane, three daughters, four sons, his parents, two brothers, and 12 grandchildren. Beefy had been a member of the American Legion, the Disabled American Veterans, the Minnesota Peace Officers Association, the Bovie Moose Lodge, and was president of the Greenway Recreational Board. He was dedicated to his community and to his family. Adi Fox felt my father was a person that stood in between him and society in what he wanted to do to victimize society. So I see Adi not only killing my dad as a father, to me, he killed what he stood for, and that was a police officer. He was such a dedicated officer. I, you can't believe it, I'm okay? It was his life, it wasn't a job. You know what I'm saying? 
It's who he was. And so BC was such a hard worker. He would go to work and there wasn't, it wasn't a time clock. It's like if we got on a case, we did a lot of investigating burglaries and that kind of stuff. He would work until the end. I mean, we would go 16 hours at a time. Yeah. And he's just un- unbelievable. Uh, Pat Maduri and I would often be with him for a number of hours and, and, uh, it was his career, and that's who he was. As a, oh, as a father, he, one of the things I would say is that he gave, uh, he was always there for you when you really needed him. But I do think one of the things growing up, uh, uh, he was always so involved in his job, and and I can recall after <clears throat> when he first started his job. One of the primary things we did as a family is we used to do a lot of deer hunting and uh, we enjoyed that. He enjoyed it and also fishing and any of those things. Well, I can remember multiple times that plans were were uh, foiled or, or discontinued because he was still on the job. And part of what happened up here in Itasca County is there wasn't like a time clock. You, if a deputy had an investigation or whatever, they could continue on. It seemed like until the case was completed or put in as many hours as they wanted. He was, um, he was smart. He was intelligent, and he had a go-to, let's get her done attitude. When we were growing up, our whole world uh, rotated around hockey. And my dad actually was very involved in hockey, both as a player and a coach. Uh, so that was kind of uh, how it was, that small town we lived in of uh, 300 and it was actually 75 people. They had a senior A hockey team and geez, they won uh, state championships as well as uh, national championship. Yeah, so that was, and that's where my dad kind of got involved. I think he got pretty well known through that and and he really supported uh, and had a connection with kids and I know there were quite a few uh, kids that he helped to get uh, college scholarships uh, when they graduated from our high school here Greenway but he he just seemed to be able to uh, take on like there was a lot of a lot of different people in positions of whether it be the media or, or college hockey coaches or whatever he had that ability to connect with them and it worked well because he he set up a lot of kids in that same way what his family's gone through is unbelievable i mean it's just when when you talk about victims there's a lot of them out there really affected their lives you try and get distance from people's tragedies but the death of beefy it just shot home to all of us how permanent murder is Beefy Lawson's funeral was held Sunday, November 1st, 1981, at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Taconite, Minnesota. He was buried in Lakeview Cemetery. The funeral was an emotional goodbye to the 51-year-old Lawson. Police officers traveling from around the state to pay their respects, and though Beefy Lawson was laid to rest, no one could rationalize the senseless tragedy. A lot of grown men in tears, a lot of them. That following spring in April, in court in Brainerd, Fox didn't dispute that he killed Lawson, but his attorney maintained that he was mentally ill and incapable of understanding his actions. However, two doctors from Duluth, a psychiatrist and a clinical psychologist, said that Fox had personality problems but appeared able to distinguish right from wrong. 
They testify that Audie's thinking process was clear and he knew the consequences of his actions. This according to a newspaper article in the Duluth News Tribune on Wednesday, April 28th, 1982. Also, according to the paper, Audie Fox allegedly intended to kill his wife by shooting her with a shotgun or hanging her. He planned to leave a suicide note behind giving reasons why she killed herself. As you can imagine, this was a very difficult trial for everyone, Beefy's family and for the men and women he served with. He had me look on and get them from the jail, bring them up to the courtroom. Well, I'm sitting with Audie Fox in, in the elevator by myself but that was hard i mean i'm just so i got him upstairs and we got him there when the trial started and uh, i was outside talking to some other deputy outside of the courtroom at the time but the, the basically what happened was the county attorney bernie bodine came out and he was talking to me about the case and stuff he was talking about what's going on and i started crying and i i just lost control of the, the thing and Bob Sarich took me the chief took me in a room and we sat for a while but I couldn't stop I just couldn't stop I was, I was just out of control so they sent me over to the clinic and uh, basically I was having I don't know if it's a diagnosis but it's kind of like a nervous breakdown and so what they did is I left the trial in Brainerd and I, they sent me home but they kept in phone contact with me and I was on the phone for the whole thing, but I didn't end up testifying. I don't know. My body just couldn't handle it. Audie Lynn Fox was convicted of murder by a jury of 10 women and two men on Monday, April 26th, 1982. The judge sentenced Audie to 27 years to life in prison in the Stillwater State Penitentiary. Audie, is now known as Minnesota Prison Inmate 103592. Even while in prison, it didn't take long for Audie Fox's name to come up again in Itasca County. Greg Lease was a deputy for Itasca County back then, and he worked with Beefy. Greg had received information that Audie wanted to put a hit out on Pam after he was convicted. A couple of years after Audie was in prison, I went to White Bear Lake and we did a telephone tap. I think for two weeks I was down there listening. And he had some of his old bike cronies that he never really committed to it. But his buddies wanted nothing to do with anything with Audie. After two weeks, we suspended it. That case against Audie went cold. His name came up again when he married another prison inmate in the 90s. He was in prison for bank robbery. There's an organization in Minnesota that unites prison inmates, male and female, for matrimony. And Audie had never met her. Well, they got married. And when she got released, she headed up to his 20 or 40 acres up in Pengilly. First thing she did was she logged it off, took the proceeds from that. Then she sold his prize Corvette. And how we found out about it, I got a call one day. It had to be in the mid-90s or so. Audie had been transferred to many different states for lockup because he was such a hard prisoner. The social worker called me up and identified himself. I think he was out east somewhere, Pennsylvania or someplace out there. And he was all distraught because this poor inmate was in prison and his wife was selling off all his personal goods. And I said, well, who is, who's the prisoner? He said, Audie Fox. I said, well, we do have history. They are legally married. State of Minnesota, what's his is hers. 
said, I will check it out. Well, he couldn't believe that we wouldn't go and stop her and do a rest or for something. We thought it was kind of poetic justice. But I went up and I interviewed her. And she told me the story how they got together. And after the conclusion of the interview, uh, I said, you do realize if Adi ever gets out, you're as good as dead because he will hunt you like a rabid dog and kill you. And she said, well, I was afraid of that. I said, so if you got any information whatsoever that could help keep him in prison, it's time to divulge it. She comes out with this box of different stuff that Adi had been sending her. And he actually had a guard's uniform from the penitentiary in Stillwater, I think. And he was planning an escape. He talked about it in a letter. He had complete portfolios of everybody who testified of him with pictures of them and news stories about it. And his plan was to get even. And I remember that reading that in, in one of his letters. So what we didn't know is the legal representation representatives would give him all the court documents. I think that's since changed for inmates, but he was getting everything that the court had, even with Judge Spooner. Records show they filed for divorce in 1998. John Spellacy was a judge in Itasca County back then and knew both Audie and Beefy. He should have been sent to prison for life with absolutely no possibility of parole. I'm sure of that in my own mind. I have no doubt when I Go back and look at the file. He has filed a number of unsuccessful appeals of his conviction in the last several years. In 1983, the Minnesota Supreme Court denied his argument that the trial court erred in a number of jury instructions. In 1991, the high court dismissed Fox's assertion that he was unable to participate in his defense because of the effects of an antipsychotic drug that he was administered before and during the trial. Audie's first parole hearing was in 1995. As part of this lifer or parole hearing, the Minnesota Department of Corrections wants to know what the sentiment is here in Itasca County concerning Audie Fox. This office in Grand Rapids has received hundreds of letters over the past few months, every single one of them urging the parole board not to let Audie Fox out of prison. This file of letters is voluminous. People from all over northern Minnesota asking to keep Fox in prison. One of those letters was written by what Judge John Spellacy. I, I said that he's absolutely the worst criminal that Itasca County has ever spawned. Spellacy goes on to say, I consider Audie Fox to be the most brazen, inhumane, cunning, and dangerous individual to have committed a crime while I've been judge in Itasca County. In my opinion, he will kill again within six months if released from prison. In 1995, his parole was denied. The parole board today decided to continue Fox's case for another 10 years, the maximum allowed by law. Fox is currently serving a life sentence for the murder of Itasca County Deputy Sheriff Robert Lawson in 1995. would later be denied parole in 2005 and in 2015. In spite of what happened to Robert Beefy Lawson, his strong will and his steadfast dedication to serve has been passed down to the next two generations of Lawsons. His oldest son, Bobby, was hired by Chief Deputy Sarich shortly after Audie Fox was convicted, and Bobby served as a respected detention deputy and 911 dispatcher for over 20 years until he retired in 2006. 
Beefy's youngest son, Todd, served as a police officer in the county for nearly 15 years before retiring in 2020. Beefy also has two grandsons serving in law enforcement, one that's a lieutenant with the Oklahoma Highway Patrol and the other who works in corrections for Itasca County. It takes a special type of person to take on a calling like this. It's a trait that runs deep in the Lawson family. So many struggle with the murder of Beefy Lawson, and they have to go through the emotions every time he's brought up for a parole hearing. His wife struggles with the murder of her husband. His parents struggle with the murder of their son. His three daughters and four sons struggle with the murder of their father. His grandchildren never got to meet their amazing grandfather because he was murdered. Chief Deputy Sarich still struggles with the fact that he approved the overtime for Beefy to go over there. Deputy Tom Peltier is still haunted with the fact that he didn't go help when Beefy asked him to. What all these folks believe is that with this selfless act, this hero, Beefy Lawson, definitely saved lives that day. In addition to the officers from all these different agencies that responded and, and spent over 18 hours there trying to save those two kids and take Audie into custody. Unfortunately, the laws in Minnesota didn't change until the early 90s, making the murder of an officer a mandatory life sentence in prison without the possibility of parole. Beefy's son Bobby still has a copy of a poem that Audie sent to the sheriff's office on October 23, 1995, using the moniker Foxtrot. The thought that Audie would have written this dark, cryptic poem and sent it to those responsible for his incarceration was disturbing to many. The poem goes on about how he was a lifer, how he cheated the gallows tree. He would get out in 15 years and be free. The last paragraph reads, Yet by your solemn vote you willed, I shall not die, though I have killed. Although I did no mercy show, in mercy you will let me go. That he who kills and does not pay may live to kill another day. At the time, it wasn't known that this poem was actually written by a British-Canadian poet by the name of Robert W. Service, who died in 1958 in France. The poem is called No Necktie Party. What's interesting about this poem is that it references he would get out in 15 years. Now, 15 years from 1995 would be 2020. Almost 15 years to the month that the poem arrived at the sheriff's office. In 2020, the Minnesota Department of Corrections scheduled a parole hearing for Audie Fox on or around January 12th of 2021. Audie will then be given the opportunity once again to argue why he should get out. Beefy's family, his law enforcement family, and his friends will argue why he should not. Throughout Audie Fox's incarceration period, he's filed 17 lawsuits against Department of Corrections staff and the state, including four habeas corpus petitions, two in 2013, one in 2016, and one in June of 2020. A writ of habeas corpus is used to bring a prisoner before the court to determine if the person's imprisonment or detention is lawful. 
A request for disciplinary history from the Minnesota Department of Corrections shows nearly 200 violations throughout Audie's entire incarceration period with the state through December of 2020. During the year 2020, there were 14 violations during 11 incidents investigated throughout the year. Records show convictions in these cases resulting in Audie spending nearly all of the last 10 months of 2020 in the segregation unit at Stillwater State Prison. These convictions included violations of refusing placement, disorderly conduct, lying and misrepresentation, disobeying direct orders, unauthorized control, theft, possession, and or transfer of use of property, and possession of contraband. Segregation units are used to house some of the most disruptive and dangerous in the prison. In the past, this has included around 6% of the population. These cells are 7 by 10 feet with a cot, sink, and a toilet. The average Stillwater prison inmate can spend as many as 15 hours outside his cell every day to eat, work, attend classes, and to exercise. Offenders housed in segregation are allowed an hour outside of their cell five days per week for exercise, phone calls, and showering. If you're interested in helping the Lawson family and Itasca County keep Audie Fox behind bars, go to the Officer Down Memorial page at www.odmp.org. It's a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to honoring America's fallen law enforcement officers. On their No Parole page, they help citizens send emails and letters to urge parole boards to deny parole to convicted cop killers. When you go to their main page, you can select the Get Involved drop-down, then select No Parole for Cop Killers. On that page, if you scroll down, you'll find Robert Beefy Lawson's link and instructions on how to send your letter to the Minnesota Parole Board. Robert Beefy Lawson is recognized each year in May during Police Week at the Minnesota Law Enforcement Memorial in St. Paul. He's honored and remembered by the Minnesota Law Enforcement Association, along with over 270 other fallen officers in the state. This organization is a volunteer-run, non-profit organization that supports fallen officers and their families each year. If you'd like to find out more about how you can support the Minnesota Law Enforcement Memorial Association, check out their website at www.minlima.org. That's www.mnlema.org. Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and for their sacrifice. Don't forget to thank their families too. They give up so much for our safety as well. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. Let's show these law enforcement officers and families our support. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening.